0: Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today we're continuing our series on science and God the Creator. And in this session, we'll see how people are, well, making more people. Our first scripture will be Genesis 820 through 9:1. And as usual, we'll have several other scriptures that we'll reference and read today. And we'll put those in the overview section. So, with the concerns of the population of the planet as a primary backdrop, let's just dig right in.
1: This the population.
0: Population. Yeah.
1: Population has been an issue for some time, as we shall see. Uh, certainly, it was a, a great topic in the 20th century. Coming into the 21st century, as we shall quote a few people here, a couple of people, it is still a concern that there's too many people, we need to stop reproducing, and why? Well, because we're going to run out of food, and because we're going to run out of food, people need to stop reproducing. That is normally the argument. I haven't found any change along those lines and uh, all the research and paying attention to that particular topic over the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years.
0: It's not the food that I'm worried about. Right. Oh, yes? It's the toilet paper.
1: Is (laughs) it? I'm worried we're going to run out of toilet paper. People stop reproducing so the rest (laughs) of us can have toilet paper. Well, that's about as valid as argument as you you hear from a lot of people. Uh, Stop reproducing. For example, let's begin with just some quotes here. Stephen Hawking, well-known genius, man of a high IQ, uh, astrophysicist. Here's what he says. Quote, In the last 200 years, the population of our planet has grown exponentially at a rate of 1.9% per year. If it continued at this rate, with the population doubling every 40 years, by 2,600, we would all be standing literally shoulder to shoulder. So there is a well-known, well-respected, he passed away a while back, uh, scientist concerned about the population. Uh, If we go back, uh, say, to the 60s, 20th century, Paul... Ehrlich wrote a book called The Population Bomb, and I remember mm-hmm. that one. I was well aware of the contents and all that. It was, stir up a lot of controversy. And I think
0: that, that book actually influenced, uh, there was a Star Trek episode uh, on population. Um, it was uh, uh, called The Mark of Gideon, and it was about overpopulation. And it was in the six, 1969, I
1: think. Okay, yeah. Mark of Gideon. I, I seemed the title sounds yeah. familiar. Um, in Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, he says, quote, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. Uh, and this is typical of people who are against populations increasing. Mm. It's always emphatic. They're always sure. They're always certain it's going to happen. To quote him continuing, in the 1970s, now he wrote this in the 60s, so keep the okay. 1970s have come and gone. <laughs> in the 1970s, the world will undergo famines. Hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. Now, uh, I'm a fan of Walter Williams, and in an article uh, in Town Hall uh, back in 2001, Walter Williams wrote this. Quote, in 1968, Dr. Paul Ehrlich, author of The Population Time Bomb, and environmentalist guru, predicted that the earth would run out of food by 1977 and that the earth's five billion population Would starve back to 2 billion people by 2025. Let me interject. The population right now is about 8 billion. Yep. So 3 billion over. (laughs) uh, We call that being wrong. We call that being wrong. Yeah. Uh, To continue with Walter Williams, Ehrlich also warned Britain's Institute of Biology in 1969, quote, quoting Ehrlich, If I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. And as Williams closes out the article, he says, why do we listen to these people? (laughs) Their predictions are always emphatic, whether it's uh, Al Gore or others, Mm. depending on global warming. It's emphatic, and they are always proved wrong time and time again. To give you an idea of how far this thing goes back, if you're familiar with The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, um, I prefer the film version, uh, which is in this country sometimes entitled Scrooge, came out in the early 1950s, black and white but I, I think it's the most faithful. But this quote you'll find in the book and in the movies, uh, a couple of men have come into Scrooge's office and they're looking for donations for Christmas. And Scrooge is Scrooge. Mm-hmm. And he says, what, there, there's no workhouses and no poorhouses? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, yes, yes, but uh, people don't want to go there and someone would rather die than go there. And so he says, if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. When I was um, starting to read and going to college and doing all that back in the 70s, that line stood out because of the nature of it. Decrease the surplus population. It sounds like some guy is a statistician. Yeah. So what that is, that's a quote from Thomas Malthus. Uh, he died in the 1830s, about the time this book was printed. Before that, Thomas Malthus had written some essays and had gotten all of Europe stirred up that, again, we have too many people... And not enough food. He proved it by statistics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're going to run out of food. Of course, it didn't, didn't happen. So what is the Christian expectation? The Creator's command to multiply remains despite man's evil ways. The only updates are in the New Testament, and they're interesting, as we shall see. But let's begin in the beginnings. Randy's going to quote from Genesis 8, verse 20, uh, through chapter 9, verse 1, 7, 18 and nineteen.
0: Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9, 7 says, And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And Genesis nine eighteen and 19 says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed.
1: So here's God talking to Noah. The flood is over, and he says, Reproduce regardless. Get busy. He makes the what I call the uh, confession concession. I'll never do this again, never flood the world this way, because man is evil in his imaginations from his youth up. Mm. Now, you would think if you stopped there, the next statement would be, therefore, stop reproducing. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> in fact, interestingly, he continues. Plan A from Genesis chapter 1 continues in Genesis 8 and 9 after the flood. He commands him to go forth and fill up the earth. I, as an aside, if you heard the podcast, the last one on global warming, Note that the global warming problem is solved and the population problem is solved in Genesis <laughs> within three or four verses of each other. Mm-hmm. find that interesting. God doesn't abandon plan A, and there's a surprise for sure after his confession. Um, his surprise is, even though man is evil, multiply regardless. So we want to examine this a little. First, let's just give you one aspect of it. In Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19, we have this.
0: Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine.
1: Famine has always been a great concern in biblical times Mm. and today. In modern times right now, currently as we speak here in August of uh, 2021, uh, hideous famine in Ethiopia, I mean, just affecting tens of thousands of people, dying. It's interesting, I read a headline on Vox, which is on the left side of the aisle, saying in a big headline, man-made. Well, And I thought, well, good for them. I'm Mm -hmm. glad to hear that some others, besides some of us over on the other side of the aisle, uh, understand this. Multiply regardless of evil. Even in the Bible, if there's a famine, God doesn't say, okay, food's gone, so stop reproducing. Mm -hmm. It's call upon the Lord. Seek his help. Here is a quote from Nevin Scrimshaw, Nevin Scrimshaw wrote an article in 1987 called The Phenomena of Famine. Uh, He passed away uh, in 2013. He was an American food scientist and institute professor emeritus at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT. So, yeah, so he's a guy who knows what's going on. He knows his food. He knows his food, and he did. He wrote books about it, as I have discovered. Here's what he says in that article. Crop failures caused by natural disasters including poor weather, insect plagues, plant diseases, crop destruction due to warfare, and enforced starvation as a political tool are some causative factors of famine. However, modern famines, like most of those throughout history, are Mm man-made. The majority of them, absolutely, absolutely. So let's take a look at why does God do this then? Given the evil of man... And uh, the original command, how come it's not altered or, or changed somewhat? It's still the same exact command to Noah that he gave to Adam and Eve. And let's talk about the optimism of God. Uh, Randy read that section where Noah did a sacrifice, mm. and God, in human mm-hmm. terms, human description, took in the, the aroma and was pleased, meaning he was content. He was a- at peace with himself, but that is also compatible with and is inherent in being optimistic. Not pessimistic. Now his confession, concession as I call it, is based on optimism, as we will see, because he is a God who is overflowing with life and it's going to come forth. Here is a passage from Ephesians 5, 2 to help us context in Christian terms that sacrifice and Noah bringing it all the way up to
0: Jesus. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.
1: Okay, the optimism is found in Christ. It might have been a long time coming from the Old Testament perspective, Genesis 8, but the optimism of God comes to focus and fulfillment in Jesus and overflows from Him. There's another passage that Paul mentions this, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14.
0: But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere.
1: There you go. And we know how fragrance is. It, it wafts everywhere. It fills up places. It's, it's, it's a picture, mm-hmm. an experience of life itself overflowing when he gave the original command in Genesis. He wanted the earth to basically uh, pulsate and be saturated, not just with the creation he'd already given, plant and animal life, but with, with people. This is plan A, and it's been going on for ages. We need to understand that. God plays the long game. Here's proof of that. Hebrews 9, verse 26.
0: For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself.
1: Okay, once again, Jesus, his suffering, his sacrifice at the end of the ages. Now, does that mean it's over? No, there are more. As we will see, there are sore ages to come. But Jesus is the turning point, the pivot, and finally going from the end of the Old Testament and its completion in stage one, and that took ages, to the next stage, which we will see, also has ages. Ephesians 2, verse 7, Paul puts it this way.
0: So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus.
1: Right. So plan A has ages behind it by the time Jesus comes about. And then when he returns, as Paul says, um, there'll be ages yet to come after that event, not just an age, although we'll see that is talked about. Uh, it's the only one talked about. We don't know anything about the content of the following ages, but Paul says it's plural and everybody knows that. The age is yet to come. So there are ages behind us and ages still in front of us. Yes, and they all had to do with the multiplicity and the fulfillment and the overflowing of the life of God. Meanwhile, Isaiah 45, 18
0: does continue. Randy? For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord,
1: and there is no other. He informed it to be inhabited, and that is going to continue even into the next age. Maybe one day we can do a podcast on that. It's, it's uh, peripheral to our discussion here.
0: So, population exp- expansion. Is in the plan.
1: It's in the plan. Still to come the ages. You read the last two chapters of the book of Revelation where all the nations are coming into the New Jerusalem. You'll get a picture of that. Mm -hmm. God is reconciled in one sense to man's evil, but because he's so optimistic, he is reconciling them to
0: Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.19. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation.
1: Yes, not counting their trespasses against them. God is overflowing with life, just as he's the creator and wants to see life explode, and that takes primarily in the multiplying of people. People get together, get married, have babies, mm. but also in the spiritual realm, as we will see, because he's God of both. He's the creator of that and the creator of the spiritual realm, the redemption realm. Uh, he created with Optimism. He's, he's abounding with optimism. Listen again and think of this verse from an optimistic viewpoint. Genesis 128.
0: To rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good.
1: Yeah. So, the, the light begins. It continues through that first chapter of Genesis and goes down to the command to multiply. And that's where he ends up with the, the, all the, the goal the entire time is the multiplicity of life. And when he returns, once again, the optimism that God has put into creation, not just into us, as we'll see in a, in a minute, being in his image, but into the uh, animate creation of the plant life, of animals, etc. Listen to this psalm, optimistic from Psalm 98, verses 4 through 9, about the returning of the judge to judge the earth.
0: Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity.
1: Yes, we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the world. Mm-hmm. And we think that's about the birth. Actually, that was taken by the songwriter from this psalm, which deals with the joy that the earth will have, the overflowing optimism, mm-hmm. and the, the, the coming of life in a fabulous way, uh, not seen before, when the judge returns. And uh, all of creation is said to be joyful about that and optimistic about the future. Now, we do know there are, there are things that are in culture against the population, against the life of God moving forward, whether it's the, uh, the pro-choice movement or other things you can name. Uh, there are obstacles. But listen to the confession of Job, who is beaten down in his life, but yet manages to come up with his confession in the middle of his trial and tribulation, which is, for the Old Testament, an astounding Prophecy and it's based on the fact that we are created in God's image and that optimism breaks through time and time and
0: time again. Job 19, Randy is going to read 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me.
1: Yeah, it's a revelation so powerful, so optimistic that he's going to faint from it. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing affirmation of optimism of God in the world, even though Job is continuing his arguments with God <laughs> for why he's in such a mess as he is in. Yes, and there's not much attention given to divine optimism. It'd be a great, It is a great subject on its own, um, but we're looking at it now from the idea of the population. So this divine optimism will overflow to the many. It's who the creator is. He overflows in life. He overflows in life. Uh, God, in humility, chose out of his abounding life to have other than the divine family.
0: Mm-hmm. You,
1: know, you know, we say, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. No, well, that was for us, but there never was a beginning. God has always been. And all the, uh, in my estimation, orthodox theologians affirm that is from eternity past, it was God the Father, loving the Son through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit returned that love of the Father, and it overflowed with life and, and optimism, and it was fine. There was no need to, to bring us into the picture, but that's an act of humility for God to say, there's going to be somebody else besides me. Mm. And so that comes out of the overflowing life of God. That's who the Creator is. Uh, since the 70s, there's been 3 billion uh, added to our planet. So clearly people are responding, whether to Christian or Jews or Muslims or whoever, it is inherent in people in the image of God and all humans are to overflow with life. And the primary aspect, the way that is expressed, is you, you get together and you have children. Mm. It's just the way it's been doing. Now, it's also in redemption. Listen to Jesus talk about the overflow of life he wants to give people in redemption.
0: John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Exactly.
1: And here's an illustration from agriculture where Jesus compares what's going to happen when he dies.
0: John twelve twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit.
1: Yes. In creation, God has created the seed. And what is in the seed? More life. hmm and you take those seeds, and you, it's just a, it's an exponential multiplying effect.
0: Life begets life.
1: Life begets life. One single seed begets much life, and that's the spiritual life that Jesus is talking about. Remember, we still live in an evil age, but it's been invaded by the future, as we shall see. And so we have this collision sometimes between anti-life and pro-life. Yeah. But pro-life is going to win. Let's take a look at Hebrews 2.10 for a good look at God the Creator, Jesus the sufferer, and... Um, How many people are going to be blessed by this overflow of life?
0: For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Many
1: sons to glory through the suffering of Jesus. Mm. That's the plan of God the Creator. Many, and we don't have time to trace that, but in, in the New Testament, the many means
0: a lot. And likely more than we think. More than we think. (laughs) More than they think.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. But now let's stop a second and let's hear the Minority Report. Listen to the shocking words of Jesus. This is a caveat. The passage is from Matthew 19. And what's happening here is the Pharisees have come and said, is it right for us to uh, get a divorce? And Jesus is talking to them about that. And they, they say, well, why didn't Moses give us command to divorce our wives? And he says, because your hearts are hard. But I'm telling you, Uh, If you divorce your wife for any other reason than sexual immorality and marry another, you commit adultery. Well, we're going to see the disciples' reaction to that, what they thought about that. And then Jesus' response to the disciples' reaction, uh, Matthew 19, verses 10 through 12.
0: The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it.
1: All right, here's a carve-out from the original command of God back in Genesis. Mm -hmm. There are certain people who do not have to be reproducing because they have been chosen or they have sensed their calling and it's such that they're they're going to be celibate as we would say. They're going to be celibate. They're not going to get married. Jesus himself was celibate. And as we'll see in just a moment, Paul was celibate. Notice the disciples' reaction when they hear, the only one reason you can divorce your wife is, oh, who can, who can deal with that? Yeah. Um, and so Jesus brings up this, the, the three eunuchs, you know. You're born that way sometimes. Men, of course, obviously in that culture in particular, made uh, eunuchs out of men. But, um, but the eunuch thing can be applied both to men and to women. Um, the, in service for the kingdom, for example, um, there's I've heard talk recently about the kids for the kingdom. People need to continue. Uh, I don't know. It's a movement, I suppose, among uh, lots of groups. But um, it was explained to me that that's uh, good. It's kids for the kingdom. You need to have more kids, more kids, more kids. Well, I'm not here to debate that one with the other. What we do find when when we find an exception is we find celibacy for the kingdom. Uh, the command to reproduce continues. And maybe kids for the kingdom is is a good idea. But what we're looking at here is the celibate aspect of it. And it does carve out a spot, an exception to the creation command. But now let's take a look at Paul building on Jesus and how he says this in 1 Corinthians 7. This involves several scriptures. So let's start with Paul's confession of his celibate state and why he thinks it's a good thing, not just for him, but for everybody else. Mm. So we're going to look at, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 6-9, through 9, and then 39-40. through 40.
0: Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion." And verses thirty-nine and forty say, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God.
1: So Paul says, I'm single, I'm celibate, and I think everybody should be that way, but I don't necessarily have, you know, not about not forcing it on you. Yeah, you. not everybody has that gift, but it's an extraordinary statement. Mm. And uh, he thinks you'll be better off. Celibacy is better. And he's going to argue that now in the verses that Randy's going to read, by which he means it doesn't make you uh, spiritually superior. It makes you better able to serve the Lord because you won't have certain confinements and restrictions, concerns, and pursuits that you do in marriage. So let's take a look now at verses. First, we'll start with verses 25 through 28. All right, so very sobering talk from Paul. And someone might say, well, doesn't he say in Ephesians 5 uh, all these glorious things about marriage and how the, the wife relates to the husband, the uh, husband is like Christ relating to the church? Yes, but there he's talking about people who are married. Yes. Here he's saying, if you have this choice, this is better. This is better. So let's take a look again at a couple more verses down that chapter where Paul builds on this, verses 29
0: through 31. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away.
1: Yes, and there there he gets to the heart of his argument, which he bases on what we call the prophetic time. As Jesus says, he's coming soon. And you find this reference like in First John chapter 2, where uh, there he says again, the, uh, the present world is fading away, but only one who does the will of God will live forever. Uh, so do not be uh, distracted by the uh, lusts and calls of the world. So not only does Paul put that in context of the marriage, because, you know, times are distressing, they're close, Jesus is coming back, you need to think about that. Uh, it's everything else, buying, selling,
0: mm-hmm. going,
1: coming, all that must be viewed from a different perspective because of... This present age, which is passing away, because a new age is coming. And so,
0: that leaves us then with, I think, verses 32 through 34. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband.
1: Yes. Um, the present crisis and this uh, age fading, some people think it's a local problem, but you line up with other scriptures and he's not talking about a local problem. He's saying this is the age we live in and it's fading, passing, coming to an end, and you need to, everybody should see the world from that perspective. Um, even if you're married, you got to have some aspect of that. But he's saying it's better to be celibate because you will be spared many pains and sorrows and difficulties. And your service, if you want to serve the Lord fully, that is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Then, then Paul does this over in First Timothy five. We're going to see he's going to argue here that people who in, who are widows don't have a husband, like he argued. You stay that way here in First Timothy seven. It's a different situation, mm-hmm. and so he argues get married. So, let's take a look at this, First Timothy chapter five, verses nine through fifteen.
0: Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan.
1: All right. Paul has assessed this situation over there in uh, Ephesus, parts of Asia, and he concludes this, the most practical thing to do here is, because of what's happening, is that the younger widows, still marriageable age and all of that, should be encouraged to go get married. Uh, What happens is they were enrolling them into the church, meaning they'd be put on church roll and taken care of, supported by the church, reach age of 60, Mm -hmm. and serve uh, the church, you know, and some people say, well, this is the beginning of uh, the nun movement, and so forth, and so on. Whatever it is, that's what Paul is saying. They're going to be committed to the church, but if they're too young, their passions, they get inflamed, mm-hmm. and they go off and they'll marry somebody who's not even a Christian, and so they end up you know, leaving the faith in that sense, being totally compromised. Mm-hmm. So he says it's far better go ahead and have them get married now, you know, within the purview of the church, and not have that problem. So Paul uh, is arguing that sometimes marriage is better. But if you can, celibacy is always a better situation than that if you can do it. Now we might say, why wasn't this brought up in Genesis 1? Here's why. Go back to Jesus, Matthew 19, where he says there are eunuchs born that way, men make them that way, and then eunuchs for the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, that's the way to serve. He doesn't have to say, put another emphasis on you need to have more kids. You have the kingdom, the kids for the kingdom. Have more and more kids. He didn't yeah. get that. What he argues is celibacy. So with Jesus, the future has invaded the present. Now here's a good passage from Luke, which illustrates the future age to come and why celibacy is a picture, a preview of that to come or a way to get ready to serve God in the next age when he returns.
0: Luke 20, 34 through 36. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Okay. Note what Jesus says, the
1: age to come. Hmm. Now, Paul tells us there are ages to come, but this is the first age of the ages to follow after the pivotal event of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, and then his return. All of history, before that turns that way, all of history turns another way when he returns. The future has invaded the present. And so those who are married in this age, assuming, as he said, worthy to attain into that age, are going to become immortal. There's no reproduction involved. Mm. So you're not going to die. No one's going to die. So therefore, it's a different situation than this age. Uh 2 Peter 3.13 gives you an illustration of the
0: next age and what it is like. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells.
1: So in the next age, we're going to have a new heavens, a new earth. It's it's going to be totally different. It's the first age of the next group of ages to roll out by God's long game and his plan to have this life of his continue to overflow and overflow and build up and multiply further and further and further. I think we're going to need a podcast on ages, by the way, I, I think. <laughs> well, we can do one. That'd be, that'd be cool. We'll have a podcast on ages. I think yeah. that might, might help. Celibacy is practice for the future, but the New Testament teaches that all of our lives, whether you're celibate or not, is practice for the future. Listen to this trustworthy saying, which someone came up with around the church's in Ephesus with uh, and Paul quotes it in 2 Timothy chapter two verses eleven
0: through twelve a the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him
1: that's right. if we endure, we will reign with him because one of the great teachings of the New Testament is the following: We are saved to serve, but resurrected to reign. Mm. That And so everything we're doing in in, in training, and I'm assuming the argument of Paul and the argument of Jesus is, if you're able, if you have the gift of celibacy, you should stay celibate. Do not be pressured into getting married because this will assist you in preparing yourself and others practice for the future. Mm -hmm. The future has invaded this present evil age. Here's a, a great example
0: from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 3. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life?
1: All right, they had issues at Corinth that were going out to the courts in the Gentile world. Paul rebukes them for that and says you need to be solving your own problems of how to make judgments And put things right, because don't you know we are destined to judge the world? Mm. So if you can't take care of things here in this life, how can you do that? How can you be prepared and and be ready for the the next life? Exactly. We will judge angels. I don't know all of that. I have some ideas of that. But he throws that in there saying, How much more matters of this life should we be making judgments if we're going to be doing that with angels and judging the world in the age to come? Again, we're saved to serve, resurrected to reign. So Multiply, good. Do that. Celibacy, if you can, better. The best of both worlds involves the multiplication of Christians mm. via Matthew 28. Go forth and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things, whatever I command you, even to the end of the proper age. translation, age, to the end of the age. Then that ends, and something
0: else takes place in the next age. That's, that's where we need kids for Christians. We need to make more Christians by doing the Great Commission. (laughs) There you go,
1: exactly. There you go. Kids for the Kingdom through uh,
0: Matthew 28
1: 28, through conversion. So next uh, time we'll be taking a look at globalism, I believe, because we're still on current events. You know, there's a big discussion that we all need to be
0: one big happy global
1: planet. Mm. So we'll continue in that next time.
0: Well, thanks, Jim. And you've given us a lot to think about. And I'm sure that there are questions and comments about it. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions. So please send them to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, and the word expectations at gmail.com. We'll use your questions or comment where possible. And we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. And until next time, keep looking up.